I think it's a good idea to keep the subject of free will separate from the also very interesting subjects of freedom and of will. Because free will is a subject connected with moral responsibility, with whether people are praiseworthy or blameworthy. Uh, and that's not necessarily so with freedom. There are some concepts of freedom, like Epictetus's concept of freedom, and Aristotle, if he has a concept of freedom, uh, these really don't throw light on, uh, sorry, responsibility doesn't throw light on what their concepts of freedom is. And as for will, it has so many different roles, willpower and all sorts of things. Now, connection with responsibility is just one of many, but quite a lot of philosophers look at other aspects of will and never mention the aspect that concerns responsibility. So I think it's best to treat the, the question of free will and the question of moral responsibility somewhat separately from these other two subjects of freedom and will. Few people heard me speaking about freedom, freedom and will in Exeter, I think, recently, but, but now I'm going to talk about moral responsibility and necessity. Aristotle uh, was opposed not to all forms of necessity at all, but to what I might call all-along necessity. In On Interpretation, Chapter 9, he uh, is against things having been necessary 10,000 years ago or for the whole of time. Also, I at least think that in Metaphysics 6.3 he's again against necessity and it seems to be he's against chains of causation which necessitate things and also go indefinitely far back without having something to stop them going too far back. It's all along necessity, or at any rate long-term necessity, that he's against. He's not against something being necessitated at the last moment. And what Susanna uh, Bobzian showed so beautifully in her lovely book about Stoic Determinism uh, was that Alexander was pushed uh, into a much more startling position that there needn't be necessity even at the very last moment because uh, Philobator, uh, at least in, in Susanna's in, uh, view, had quite recently argued that when you've got the same cause and the same circumstances, it's necessary, uh, I should have put the necessity first, it's, ne it's necessary that if you have the same cause and the same circumstances, you'll have the same outcome. And that pushed, into, uh, that pushed Alexander into denying that. He denies that uh, at the beginning of page 2 and page 3 of the handout, and we don't necessarily have to look at these pages so that I can make progress. I probably won't on the whole look at them, but they're there for you just to check, and uh, check in the discussion or whenever you wish. Uh, the, 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 this question is put by uh, some stoic right at the beginning of uh, 2 and 3, and it's repeated... The, 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 the last moment question is repeated by Nemesius on page 4. And we're greatly indebted to Suzanne Bobzian for bringing all this out. Now, of course, it is much more controversial whether last moment necessity can be scrapped. But at any rate, I think if we take everything you do having been necessary before you were conceived, then there are a lot of people 
uh, nowadays, and always have been people who didn't see how that could square uh, with our being praiseworthy and blameworthy. I'm not talking about other value concepts. I'm not talking about freedom. I see very clearly how you could be free in Epictetus's sense, which I'll come to, and is the most important sense of great value. I think Mahatma Gandhi was an example of, of Epictetus's freedom, and it's an important concept. Various kinds of freedom are perfectly compatible with that. I'm just talking about moral responsibility, meaning praiseworthiness and blameworthiness. <clears throat> A lot of people always have, in antiquity and now, thought, <clears throat> it's hard to see how you could be praiseworthy or blameworthy if before you were conceived, at any rate, it was already inevitable what you were going to do. But, of course, the opposite intuition also exists. And so we've got one of these unsatisfactory situations in philosophy where I believe there's no proof on either side. And people just go on intuitions and always have. In antiquity they did, I think they do now. And so it's one of the sad things in this particular subject that intuitions have never matched and there isn't a proof. I'll give you one example of Alexander uh, saying the other side has begged the question. Each side says the other begs the question. Alexander says so in chapter 24, which is on my pages 5 to 6. Uh, although, again, I won't um, leave off time to look at pages 5 to 6. Alexander says, now look, uh, this definition which on the evidence of Nemesius, actually, has been ascribed to Philopator, rather plausibly, I think, by Suzanne Bobzian. Uh, uh, there's an argument which involves this, uh, uh, this conception of Philopator, uh, which says that necessity all along is compatible with up to us, things being up to us, because, after all, Necessity all along is compatible with virtue and vice. A a and Alexander replies, oh, look, they're begging the question. They're, they're just assuming that we're going to agree that virtue and vice are compatible with uh, necessity all along. But of course we're not going to agree with that. So it's just a question-begging uh, argument that it's producing. Both sides accuse each other and still accuse each other of begging the question. Now, the other very interesting thing that Susanna uh, did uh, was to show that Philopator had uh, his own definition of up to us. And he refined the Stoic definition that what comes about because of us uh, is up to us. No, he refined it very much. It's up to us, says Philopator, meaning humans, if it comes about through our impulse and assent, our rational assent. So he's greatly refined the Stoic account of up to us. All this owed to Susanna Bobsey and bringing it out so clearly. Uh, that definition is given in chapter 13 of Alexander's De Farto. Uh, it's on page 6 of the handout. I'll get, tell you the exact lines. 182, lines 16 to 19. And then we can look at it in the discussion. But the idea here, with Philopidon not yet named here... Uh, is that things are up to us humans if they happen through our impulse and assent. Uh, the grounds for thinking that this was Nemesis who produced this is that 
Uh, the same phrase occurs, though it's not put as the definition of up to us, but the same phrase occurs on page four of the handout in Nemesius, the, 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 the Christian after Alexander. And <clears throat> here it is, uh, or the passage does bring in Philopator. Now, moving on, I think one thing, I, I don't know whether it's been noticed, but this wasn't what part of what Susanna Bozian was doing at any rate, is that to this definition, Alexander has no objection at all. He is perfectly happy with it. He discusses it in chapter 14, which I put on uh, page 6. And he says, yes, th this is right. A and what's more, he'll go a bit further. It does indeed require rational assent, because, you see, what Alexander was doing uh, in relation to the Stoics was either saying, good God, they're completely wrong, or, well, but of course, of course, uh, but Aristotle said that already. Well, of course, Aristotle didn't say anything about assent, but here's Alexander, he's borrowing the idea of assent. Very good idea, yes. Rational assent, that's now Aristotelianism too. And uh, indeed, this is a very good account of uh, what's up to us. Uh, and he adds his own little bit. He says, you see, reason comes in in the following way, that humans can look at how things appear. It appears appropriate to act this way, but humans can look at these appearances and they don't have to give their assent. They can withhold their assent. And so, you see, humans can act in either way. They can either do the action or not do the action. And that's what we've got to put in. Well, now that's a little addition, which uh, 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 the Stoics, not even Philopato, said. So he accepts with pleasure, chapter 14 of Day 40, he accepts this new definition of up to us as through our impulse and assent, our rational assent, but he adds, reason comes in as deliberating and therefore being able to assent or withhold assent. Page 6 of Handout. And now a little side issue, rather an interesting one. So, animals are in a particularly curious case. Because Aristotle has told us in Nicomachean Ethics 3.1 that animals act voluntarily. Now, of course, in Book 3, Chapter 1, Aristotle introduced the voluntary and involuntary by saying right at the beginning of 3.1, this is an important subject because it's connected with praise and blame, and so we've got to understand it for that reason. So voluntary should mean that, um, this is my comment rather than Alexander's, should mean that animals can be praised and blamed. And I think that is true of domestic animals, I mean of higher domestic animals. I think those who who have, I apologize that I don't have, uh, any higher <laughs> domestic animals, uh, but I've often observed them with great pleasure and I like them, we'll, we'll see uh, that they know they shouldn't be doing this and uh, they can be praised and blamed. And e Even as a schoolboy, I was reading King Solomon's Ring, lovely book with wonderful examples of animals knowing jolly well they're doing the wrong thing and even being ashamed and so on. But now... Alexander's departing from Aristotle because he says, but they can't have up to us, because I've agreed with this uh, philopator stoic definition of up to us, where you've got to be able to give the assent of your reason, and also are free to withhold the assent of your reason, because that's part of what I mean by deliberating about whether the appearances uh, are, are reliable. And animals can't do that, so animals 
contrary in my belief to anything Aristotle ever said, have got voluntariness, all right, that's in Aristotle, but they don't have up to us. Uh, now, uh, there are some people who disagree with me. I'm very sorry they're not here, actually, um, uh, uh, because I know they'd give me a run for my money, uh, but you'll have to do it instead. Uh, but Terry Irwin, certainly, and a student of his called Roderick Long, and Walter Englert, three very good people, uh, do take Alexander's view here that voluntariness does not um, involve up to us. Now, this part I haven't put on the handout because I'd probably best if I'm not diverted too much to Aristotle, at least on this issue, uh, if we are to take in Alexander. But my general view I have explained in, uh, well, I, I explained it in my book, Animal Minds and Human Morals. It, it's this. Uh, the Eudemian Ethics and, um, and, and, and the so-called common books, common between Eudemian and Nicomachean Ethics, namely Book 5, Chapter 8, say straightforwardly that the voluntary is up to us. But if we take the Nicomachean Ethics uh, disregarding the common books, I think we get the same result uh, with one in, in intervening stage. We're told in Book 3, Chapter 1, um, if you want the line number, it's 1111A23, that a voluntariness involves an internal origin of, of, of our action. But then we're told also in 3.1, but in addition, twice in 3.5, that where you've got an internal origin of action, the thing's up to you. So with just one extra step, uh, Book 3 is giving us the same verdict, that where we've got voluntary, we've got up to us. So that's my view, but I know that um, it, it, it's subtle and clever what Terry has said and the others have said, so there may not be agreement on that point. Now, he's happy then, Alexander's happy with this definition, but he adds to it in a way probably the Stoics wouldn't like, because with this stuff about and you can withhold assent, he's trying to get in his idea that there must be the possibility of opposites, so we can't have necessity. I think that's what he's trying to do, although he doesn't yet use the word necessity. And he makes another complaint about the Stoics uh, when he gets on to chapters 18 and 19. Uh, there's only a tiny little complaint in the chapter we're talking about. It's rather a miserable little complaint. It's on, on, on a sort of side issue and uh, actually I think he's wrong about it. It's a very small complaint. His sort of more full-throated complaint is not in that chapter that I've just been talking about, on page 6, chapter 14. It's in chapters 18 to 19. And he twice there says that the Stoics should have said, or perhaps sometimes they unwittingly actually concede without intending to, that what is up to us is also free. So he is connecting up to us with, with the notion of free. And he does so on page 7 of the handout, and Nemesius does so on page 4 of the handout. Um, perhaps that is just worth looking at at least Alexander's. There are very few lines. Page 7 of the handout. Um, in chapter 18, the lines are 188.17, just five lines there, 188.17, oh, it's not, yes it is, yes, the right-hand side of page 7. Where I've underlined it in the top paragraph, on the right-hand side, he's saying, for in all that they say, they preserve, unwittingly, of course, he, he means, um, against their intentions, they preserve what is free and in our own power, I think he is there 
saying that they actually unintentionally connect the two. Or, although in his sense of free, of course, um, uh, they were resisting saying free. Uh, and then in chapter 19, where I've underlined it, right-hand side of page 7, he says, they would have ceased from their combativeness in argument and would have conceded that what depends on us, what's up to us, is free and in our own power and in control of the choice and doing of opposites in the same circumstances, if they'd realized that so-and-so and so-and-so. This is his complaint. They either unwittingly did, or they should, have agreed uh, that what is up to us is free. Now, I'm going to look at three objections to Alexander. The first objection would be, but wait a moment, Alexander should have realized that the Stoics, not merely unwittingly, but actually do openly and gladly say that what is up to us is free. So what's he complaining about? This would be the first objection. Why does he ignore or downplay their willing acceptance? Well, one thing, and I don't know whether this has been noticed, uh, but it's on page 8, and I will look at this one, is that Epictetus actually says something rather like uh, that what is up to us is free, but it is importantly different. Let's look at page 8, and let's look at the handbook of Epictetus. 1, 2 to 3, I've underlined quite a bit of that, the very first entry on page 8. Furthermore, the things up to us are by nature free. Perhaps I'll pause there just to explain something. The term by nature free is obviously not the same as the term free. In Epictetus it occurs seven times. In one of the passages, in one nine of the discourses, after having said by nature free, he does a couple of times just put plain free, but I think that's because he, he takes it, you'll supply the by nature, because he's just said it. I think that apart from that, by nature free it is different from free. By nature, I think, is a qualification on free. But what sort of qualification is it? Well, let's read the rest of this entry from the handbook. Furthermore, the things up to us are by nature free, unhindered and unimpeded, while the things not up to us are weak, slavish, doulos, as opposed to eleutheros, subject to hindrance and not our own. Remember, therefore, that if what is by nature slavish, you think to be free, and what is not your own, I'll come back to that phrase, to be your own, you will be hampered, will grieve, will be in turmoil, and will blame both gods and men. While if you think only what is your own to be your own, and what is not your own to be, as it really is, not your own, then no one will ever be able to exert compulsion upon you. No one will hinder you. No one will blame Oh, sorry, you, sorry, you will blame no one, will find fault with no one, will do absolutely nothing against your will. You will have no personal enemy, no one will harm you, for neither is there any harm that can touch you. Now, Epictetus's most important concept of freedom is a kind of invulnerability. Freedom for him is not, as it would be for Alexander or for the Christians later on, something we all have to some extent, or at least we have free choice, according to Augustine. It's not something that's supposed to be more or less universal to us. 
Uh, it's a very, very rare quality of invulnerability. The, 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 the tyrant says, I'll put you in chains, and you reply, me, you can't put in chains. Sorry, uh, uh, because I am my praharasis. You can't put my praharasis in chains. Only my leg. My leg isn't me. My leg's not part of me. I am my will. It's very rare to do this. The only examples you can find are Diogenes the Cynic and Socrates. I found Mahatma Gandhi. I found Admiral Stockdale. It's very, very rare. It's because you haven't set your heart on anything. This is what Mahatma Gandhi did. You haven't set your heart, heart on anything except what nobody else could rob you of. The, inner, the, the, the tyrant can't rob you of uh, put, putting you in chains or cutting your head off because you haven't set your heart on your life. You haven't set your heart on... Uh, one of the things that grieves me is that Gandhi hasn't set his heart even on his family's life. I mean, there are problems about being a saint. Uh, we don't want too many saints around, actually. Much as I admire Mahatma Gandhi, we don't want too many of them. You, you don't set your heart on anything except what you can totally control. And then you are free in this rare sense of invulnerable. So, one guess at what he's saying here, I do have another guess, uh, but I'll postpone it for discussion, or you may come up with other guesses. I have another guess, but the guess I'm going to give you is that by nature free, given the context that we've got in Epictetus' handbook 1, 2 to 3, is probably that what's up to us being only very, very few things, not crossing the road, not, not, not being sure our family are never killed, not being sure we don't die of a disease, and so none of that's up to us. But the very few things that are up to us will, if you recognize that it's only those very few things, and fully accept that that's fine with you, will give you this very rare sort of invulnerability freedom. That's one interpretation. I offered that in Gandhi and the Stoics. I have now got another possible interpretation, uh, but it wouldn't connect so well with this passage, so I'll leave that for discussion. You may have interpretations too. But there it is, I'll say it once again. I think by nature free, certainly I think it's not the same as free, it is that if only you were to accept, which is incredibly rare and difficult, if only you were to accept that only those very few things are, 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 are up to you, and that's absolutely fine, and you're going to set your heart only on those very few things, then everything that's up to you, you would be doing as an invulnerable person. The tyrant cannot touch you, much less can inner tyrannies, like showing you've got a better motor car than somebody else. No inner tyrants can touch you, but no outer tyrants can touch you either. That's one possible interpretation. It doesn't matter too much to me what the right interpretation is. We can come to other ones if, if you wish. Now, the question in the first objection was, why did uh, Alexander ignore, or just mention, but treat it as unwitting, that the Stoics accepted that what to us is up to us might be free? Well, the answer is that we've had two senses of free here, but they're both, in Alexander's view, totally irrelevant to what interests him, which is praiseworthiness and blameworthiness and moral responsibility. They don't help with that at all. Let's just take them. Take the very important sense of free in Epictetus, 
the invulnerable free, well, you don't need to have reached that very rare state to be praiseworthy or blameworthy and morally responsible. It's not a relevant sense of free. So there's no reason for Alexander to take that into account. But what about by nature free? Well, you see, on any interpretation of by nature free, and I've got my other interpretation in mind, which I'll save up, but um, you can see if we take the one I suggested, it, by nature free is connected with the invulnerable sense of free uh, by a sort of hypothetical, if you would only take the uh, invulnerable person's attitude to what's up to us, then you would be invulnerable free. But it will work out all right even on the other sense of by nature free that I've got, uh, that I've so far thought of. Irrelevant. There was absolutely no need for Alexander to take seriously the stoic sense of free in which they could say that up to us is either by nature free for everybody or that what is up to us is in very rare cases for Diogenes and Socrates but for nobody else free. These are really quite irrelevant to Alexander's interest in moral responsibility, praiseworthiness and blameworthiness. So there's no obligation on him to take seriously these Stoic ideas, which is not to disparage the Stoic ideas. You can see I greatly admire uh, the Stoic conception of Gandhian Socratic freedom. Second objection. Now, the second objection I find the hardest. It might be said, look here, Alexander's idea that we could have the same cause and the same circumstances, and yet one time I do so-and-so, and the other time I don't do so-and-so, that would mean that my actions were completely divorced from my motivation. You know, if my motivation just doesn't tell you which way I'm going to go, I'm either going to do it or I'm not going to do it, my motivation uh, doesn't determine which, uh, Alexander's divorcing people's actions from their motivation. That's a very serious objection to Alexander. Well, I think Alexander has two answers, which aren't quite enough on their own, but I'd like to supply him with just a third step, and I think he'd be free. This is the most dangerous part of my argument, because I might be wrong philosophically. But I think it hasn't been noticed that at least he takes the first two steps, and this will be worth looking at on pages two to three, where he is answering the philopator move. Take page two first, Alexander on fate, chapter 15. I've even penned into the margin what I think he's saying. In the first passage, roughly speaking, 185, 13 or 14, I read it out. He's trying to say now that even on his view, the human being is the cause because the human being's motive is a perfectly good cause. And where I've underlined it, not the first underlining, because that, that, that was the... Um, uh, that, that was reporting the Stoic argument that if you once say, if in the same circumstances someone acts now in this way and now in another, motion without a cause is introduced, that's the Stoic objection. And now, here's the reply in my second underlining on the left-hand side of page 2. No, there will be a cause, is the first point he's making, because there is a motive. So let me read out his first part of his reply. And for this reason, the things that come about in this way do not come about without a cause, having their cause from us. 
For men is the beginning and cause of the actions that come about through him, and this is what being is for a man, i.e. it is to have the beginnings of his acting in himself in this way. So I think he's so far saying the human being is the cause. So you've still got a cause, all right. It'll emerge in the next part of his answer that in particular it's the human being's motivations that are the cause. I'll read that out next. But so far we've been told the human's the cause. So you've got a perfectly good cause. What I'm saying does not lead to causeless behavior. No, the human is the cause. Now we'll whittle that down to the human's motives. So we're not going to be cut off. We're not cutting off the person's actions from their motives. Let's read the second part of his reply then, where I've underlined it. And for this reason, each of the other things follows the causes that surround it from outside, but man does not. For him, being is to be found in having a beginning and cause for himself, so as not to follow the things that surround him from outside with no alternative. For indeed, if our judgment about what is to be done took place with reference to a single goal, a goal is what I meant by motive, he's talking about the motives, so it turns out that when he says that the, the, the person, the, the man is the cause, the human is the cause, it's the human's motives that really interest him. But now he's making a new point. We don't just have one motive. We may have several standing motives. I think he's going to move from making a point about causation, that the human, and indeed in particular his motives, or her motives, are a perfectly good cause, to a point about necessity. The new point is going to be, look, we've got more than one motive, and there's no necessity as to which motive will operate. These are standing motives. Or oh, I think he's getting very close to this good argument. We have standing motives, so we've got a cause in there, all right. One of them's going to operate as the cause. Uh, so, so we answer the thing about it being causeless, but also we avoid necessity because... There's no saying which of our standing motives will be the one that operates. Could be any of them. That's what he's going to say next, I think. For indeed, if our judgment about what is to be done took place with reference to a single goal, perhaps there would be some reason for our judgments about the same things always being similar. But since it is not so, for we choose the things we choose sometimes on account of what is noble, sometimes on account of what is pleasant, sometimes on account of what is advantageous, so there are three motives right off. And it is not the same things that bring these about. It is possible for us at one time to prefer certain of the things that surround us, being attracted to what is noble, and at another time to prefer others, <coughs> referring our judgment to the pleasant or the advantageous. So I think we've got two points. I certainly don't think this has always been appreciated. I don't know if anybody has brought it out. Do, do tell me if somebody's made this perfectly clear. Um, but I think we've got two points which are very good for starters. First, a person's motives are a perfect cause. Secondly, there doesn't have to be any necessitation as to which of our several motives operates, because we have at least three. Of course, I would say we have hundreds of motives, but uh, three is enough for the argument to work. So I think these are two steps in the right direction. So I don't think Alexander's a complete fool, but he does need an extra argument. So here I'm going to supply the last stage of the argument. Nobody thought of this last stage in antiquity, as far as I know. 
And I apologize, I said it before, but previously I said it in relation to Aristotle, now I'm going to say it in relation to Alexander. He needs this extra argument too. I apologize particularly to Miles Bernier because I thought of this argument in the wonderful lectures we gave together to the London students, <coughs> in which we um, contradicted each other in front of them as much as we could. Uh, <laughs> and I'm, I dare say Miles will contradict me here, but he was very generous to me on that particular, uh, on those particular occasions. Now, here's my answer. We've got to understand something about the nature of explanation. The logic of explanation is completely different from the logic of necessitation. To explain something is commonly to explain it in relation to some apparent um, conflict. How surprising that this is so in face of the fact that something apparently conflicting with it is so. So whether you've got a, a, an explanation depends on what the question is. You're being asked, well, in the face of this, how can such and such be so? What's going to be a good explanation, what's going to be a complete explanation, is relative to the question being asked, is relative to which in the face of is being put to you. Now I'm going to give you an example. I gave many examples in my original treatment, but I'll just take one example. Imagine that you've got a class of students. One is an able and highly motivated student, but uh, of the ten lectures in the term, let us say, he comes to nine and somebody wants to know, why didn't he come to the, all ten? Now, maybe what this person overlooked was that he has a family and lives twenty miles away because he's rather poor, and so unlike the students, he doesn't, other students, he doesn't live on campus. This had been overlooked. So the, 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 if the questioner is somebody who knows he's an able and highly motivated student, asks his question, meaning in the face of the fact that he's able and a highly motivated student, why didn't he come to all ten? Because even some rather bored and boring students uh, didn't come, uh, came to all ten. If that's the question, it is a complete answer to say, didn't you know he lives twenty miles away and has a family? Now, these were standing motives. He had these motives every week. Every week was a bit of a struggle. He was tremendously motivated, uh, but it was a tremendous distance, and he had all these family obligations and so on. Now, I say that in relation to most of the questions people would be likely to be interested in, and probably in relation to all questions except one extremely boring question, there may be a perfect answer to why he didn't come to all ten. There is admittedly one question, uh, but I'm not surprised. Why, why ever suppose otherwise? There is one question you can cook up to which there is absolutely no answer, no explanation whatever. Supposing somebody said, but in face of the fact that in spite of living twenty miles away and having all these family obligations, he managed to come to nine, why in face of that fact did he not come to all ten? No answer on an indeterminist view. No explanation. Why suppose that everything has got an explanation? Aristotle actually proved, to my satisfaction, that lots of things don't have any explanation. In particular, coincidences don't have an explanation. If they did, they wouldn't be coincidences. But here's another thing. 
that doesn't have an explanation. Why suppose that everything does have an explanation? Well, I suppose because we're philosophers and we love explanations so much. Lovely story about Democritus. I must, I must just break off for a moment to tell the Democritus story. Um, uh, he found that his, um, his, his uh, pickled gherkin tasted of honey. And he thought, my goodness, what shape must the atoms of a gherkin be in order to taste of honey? And his servant came in and said, Lord bless you, sir, I stored your gherkin in a honey jar. And Democritus was furious to know the truth because it was so interesting to look for the explanation. You see, that's a weakness of ours as philosophers. We do love explanations, but there may be some things, and here's one that has no explanation, but only in relation to one question, in relation to all the other questions, uh, that I think there's likely to be an explanation in relation to the most obvious question. There certainly is a complete explanation to why he didn't come ten times. That's my story. Maybe wrong. Now, of course, the determinist thinks I am wrong. He said, no, look, there must have been an extra factor. His baby must have been a little bit iller that day. His wife must have been unable to make the breakfast or something. You see, something must have been different. Well, that's just an expression of a deterministic view, and we've never managed to find a clincher between determinism and indeterminism. Uh, I, I agree there is no clincher. I'm not saying I can prove uh, indeterminism. I'd rather like it to be true, in a way. I, well, I would rather like it to be true, but I can't prove it at all. No. It's an open question, and if the determinist says, no, there must have been an extra factor, he's simply saying, I'm a determinist. That's all he's saying. He's not saying anything of philosophical value. He's saying, I'm a determinist, and so my belief is that there must have been an extra factor. And an indeterminist will say, oh, but I'm an indeterminist, and I believe there needn't have been any extra factor. All right, you've heard what two people believe. We haven't got any further forward philosophically, because there's no argument that there must be an extra factor, or that there needn't be an extra factor. There's no argument at all. Somebody might say, look, we won't really have an explanation until we've got the entire history of the universe. A cup of it, please. Uh, do you think that somebody who's not yet satisfied by the explanation why it didn't come ten times would really like to hear the entire history of the universe if that phrase even made sense? Which, of course, it doesn't make sense for one moment because we don't know all the physical terms. I mean, we've only just learned about quarks, haven't we? Or some of us have learned about some more obscure particles like the Higgs boson. But, I mean, the Higgs boson is hardly the beginning of that. There's probably an infinite number of things we haven't yet discovered. There isn't such a thing as a complete history of the universe for a start. But if you were to try and offer one, you would simply be wasting your time and the person who asked the question should walk out and leave you. And actually, there's a whole thing by Plutarch about that called about not listening to bores. It's called on complacence. In other words, um, wanting to avoid offence excessively. And one of his examples is, don't go on listening to balls too long. In this case, I think you should just walk out if he offers you the entire history of the universe or tries to. Right, okay. Now, <clears throat> that's my answer to the second question, but of course I was doing a piece of philosophy there, and of course in philosophy one could always be wrong, even if one's right on the text, which is also very doubtful. Now, uh, objection three and last. Uh, my last objection is this. Uh, this one was put by Michael Frader. Actually, the other two were put by Michael Frader as well. This one was put by Michael Frader, but I can deal with it, I think, rather shortly. Uh, M Michael thought that Alexander was saying that what makes an action praiseworthy makes is that you would have had the ability to do a bad job. Well, that would be a balmy view if Alexander had been saying it. And Michael protests that your ability to do a bad job 
is not that from which your action derives merit. Uh, but Alexander wasn't saying that. Alexander merely meant that it was a necessary condition. He didn't talk about making or deriving or sufficient conditions. He was only saying it's a necessary condition of your being praiseworthy that you, you could have done, you could have refrained, you could have done otherwise. And I think that's a good point for the following reason. I mean, supposing there was somebody who did a wonderful job, let's take a craft, who made absolutely wonderful sculptures from the time he was an infant. Well, I don't think it's praise that we offer him. We'd offer him all. We'd feel all. We'd think this is a daimon, a daimonion. This isn't a human at all, we'd think. And indeed, we'd have a much higher level of admiration for him or her. We'd feel all astonishment. We'd think daimonion. Uh, and praise wouldn't be the attitude. So I think actually that this is, this is right. So I've now attempted to answer three objections to Alexander. I know his reply sounds outlandish. I know it sounds as if it's got a lot of objections to it. What I've been trying to do is to answer these objections. I was going to do two other things, but I think I could skip them. I was going to just sum up the five ways in which Aristotle and Alexander differ from each other because in defending Alexander in another climate with the Stoics around and so on, obviously he's going to differ from Aristotle. And uh, I had, if Susanna Bobsey had been here, but I didn't do that, I certainly needn't do that, she's not. I, I had been going, had she been here, to uh, ask her if she would agree that Alexander could have got his ideas uh, from the enterprise of trying to defend Alexander in a climate where the Stoics are attacking, and so it's a completely different climate. And that would be enough, and it needn't be that he'd learnt this from Middle Platonism. Rather, probably Alexander and Middle Platonism together uh, were learning how to deal with their subjects in the light of the new climate with real determinists around, uh, really pressing their point. Uh, I won't do that, as, as Susanna's uh, 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 not here. And perhaps I should hold up on the other one, but I think I could say to uh, make the five points one by one. There's a point about animals in which Alexander differs uh, from Aristotle. There's a point about last moment necessity not being inevitable. There was a point about distinguishing up to us from being free. There's the point that Aristotle, Pamela Hubie said this ages ago, uh, never explicitly says that the trouble with determinism is it clashes with moral responsibility. He takes <clears throat> other forms of conduct it would clash with Actually, moral responsibility would have been a more plausible one, I think. And finally, Alexander doesn't mentions, but doesn't understand, I think, Aristotle's glorious point that coincidences don't have explanations. So they differ in various ways, but I'll stop there.